<laughs> Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the Orleans Parish Public Defender's Office recently discovered that it had employed a non-lawyer as a staff attorney, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where after 15 years, the sole remaining Krispy Kreme shop has permanently closed. Never fear, there's still a shop in Conway. Tonight, Michael and I are looking at the case of Arkansas versus Christina Marie Riggs. In November 1997, Riggs killed her children, Justin and Shelby. Riggs' own suicide attempt was botched, and after a brief hospitalization, she was charged with capital murder and, after conviction, sentenced to death in 1998. We'll talk about the facts of the case. Riggs' history and the attempts by Amnesty International and the ACLU to stop her execution, which went forward on May 2nd, 2000. As always, we are a live show and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good morning, Michael. Good evening, Michael. I don't know what time of day it is. Good morning. <laughs> It's been one of them days, hasn't it, Lisa? Yeah, it's been a long week for me. (laughs) It's only Tuesday. So two things based upon that intro. First of all, I got to give a little background on that Krispy Kreme because I saw that story all over Facebook this morning. First off, apparently they were pretty shady about how they did it. Like the people weren't even informed that worked there. Like, they showed up to work, and the building was locked and gutted already. Like, crazy. Right. I was like, right. that's just completely not cool. And then, uh, as far as your story about the New Orleans attorney, holy crap, how do you not do some betting or something? If you're a government if you're a government agency, I'm pretty sure you can bet some people. Well, you know, they found out because she filed something or filed several papers with different bar roll numbers. Ah. Um, and it looks like uh, they're going to have to review every case that she uh, represented anybody on 
because uh, she was not a licensed attorney. That's crazy. So that gives a lot of people and, life, Well, not necessarily because um, basically what they'll have to do is look at the cases, look at the evidence, look at the advice she gave, uh, and whether or not the services that she rendered fell below effective assistance. Okay. Um, so it's not guaranteed. Hmm? Does she it uh, may be face a, any legal problem? There is a potential for a legal problem. Um, I think... Uh, Practicing without a li- practicing law without a license carries a pretty hefty fine and potential for some jail time. Okay. I, it may be a misdemeanor, and I'll do some more research. This literally just broke a few days ago, but this may be something as simple as they hired her as a staff attorney. Her bar results were pending, and then when she re- when she found out she didn't pass, she did not inform them. Okay, so she was going through the process. She just proceeded not to. So there was really nothing that they could. But you know, it, if you're yeah. if you're practicing as an attorney, and you get notice that you didn't pass the bar, you need right. to tell somebody. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm just saying that the actual uh, the office didn't do anything wrong. They, you know, she was actually making an attempt, and they thought that, you know, she had passed, and she just didn't correct them. That appears to have been what happened, and, and they caught it, like I said, because she apparently used a different bar roll number than the one she had been using. And I think that led to an inquiry that they uh, basically found out that she did not, the bar the bar roll numbers she was using weren't hers. Right, right, okay. So, um, but uh, it's going to be a pretty interesting case and, uh, we'll see how we'll see how it turns out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was I was looking. We were talking before we came on. I was looking for a for her address, and I know I saw it. Um, and I just can't find it now. Hey, it happened. So, yeah, I just remember. I remember that they showed an intersection. It's actually. A pretty popular <clears throat> intersection around here. It's the corner of uh, North Hills and uh, North Hills and JFK here in Sherwood. And I was like, "Wow, that's right down the road." Yeah, I know um, it's pretty close. I'm not. I, I I the name that I the part of the name that I remembered was something like you know uh, something Oaks. Or something oak. Maybe Thousand Oak. No, it was a, it was another. It sounded almost like a, a 
like a ranch name on Bonanza. Huh. Okay. <laughs> so I'll I'll look um it I didn't see it in uh I didn't see it in either of the documents that I checked. So okay. uh but I'll find it. I'll I'll, I'll eventually find it. <laughs> Sounds good. So <clears throat> all right, we've got some updates or new developments more or less. Um, Abu Jamal, he is now seeking funds and support for a petition to get cataract surgery because he's a diabetic and apparently his eyesight is going. Why does he need funds for that? Don't they get free health care? Yeah, well, the prison is uh, the prison is not big on paying for things like that, and and like with his hepatitis, he actually filed a federal lawsuit and had the prison ordered by the federal court to provide a hepatitis drug, right? That they would not normally provide. Um, so huh. it's probably going to be the same thing. You know, to go to an outside doctor and have the cataract surgery performed. Well, um, I really honestly did not know that. Now, you said he has diabetes, did you say? Uh, and that's what the cataracts are coming from? He's, he, yeah, he's diabetic. I mean, he's in his, you know, he's born in 54. So he is 65 now. Now, are we sure this isn't number one in case of him getting old? Or also, I don't know how hepatitis works, but is, could it possibly, could they think that it's linked to his hepatitis? Cataract could be age, diabetes, and just general medical, all of the above. Right, right. So, uh, but that is, that's his appeal uh, at the Superior Court in Pennsylvania is, you know, we're still waiting on the briefs to be filed. Okay. So, um, that's where that stands. And Hank Skinner, uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals, has deemed his case submitted as of 3-27-2019. That mm-hmm. means all the parties have submitted their briefs, uh, and then now the Court of Criminal Appeals, which sits as an en banc court, it doesn't do you know it doesn't sit like most appellate courts, a panel of three judges. It sits right. en banc, and they're now gonna make a decision. It could be as much as eighteen months or two years. Wow. So we will okay, have so to see what and yeah, well and that is I mean there was a there was a complaint by Rodney Reed's attorneys about the Court of Criminal Appeals taking so long uh to make a decision on his 
Ritz and his appeal of the denial of DNA testing. However, to me, that says that they are considering the entire record and, and considering the issues raised and the evidence submitted and are not, you know, just rubber stamping the trial court's decisions. Right. You can't have it both ways. You know, if they make a decision right. in a month, they're rubber stamping and doing something wrong. If they take 18 months, then they're doing something wrong. Right. You know. Everybody wants to talk so, about um, how quickly Texas is killing people, but of course, yet again, we see something yeah. crazy like that. Right, exactly. Uh, Larry Swearingen, his story is going to be featured on HLN's Death Row Stories this Sunday, June 30th, 2019. I believe it's 8 p.m. Eastern. And check local listings for HLN. For those listening in different parts of the country and the world. Um so that's going to be interesting to see although I've I've watched all the other death row stories and you know we'll get a we'll get a sliver of the prosecution's case and then we'll get a a heaping helping of Swearingen's case okay and issues that have been raised and decided but they'll be addressed as though they've never been decided by any court are treated okay. as though. And that is the day of our Court of, of Public Opinion, part two of our chat, um, which we're going to record, and then we're going to air on Tuesday, July 9th. Mm-hmm. We'll have a live show on Monday the 8th, and then air that Court of Public Opinion show on the 9th. So we'll have a, a second bonus episode. Okay. Thank you. And I will send you a revised schedule tomorrow. Okay. And then finally, Adnan Syed, uh, his attorneys have requested an extension of time for filing of their writ to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was granted. Mm -hmm. And I believe the writ is now due toward the end of August. Okay. So and I, I will keep uh, I will keep an eye out on that. Okay, definitely. Uh, I think were, were you talking about that uh, extension the other day uh, last week, and you had said that uh, you weren't uh, sure that they were going to frame it, like they waited till the last minute or something. Well, no, the deadline to file was actually in the end of July. And so they they requested the extension of time. I think the extension of time had been filed, but the court granted it the following day. Uh-huh. Or when I looked at the docket, it hadn't been granted yet. But it was great. Right. So, okay. um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a very slim possibility that they will take the writ 
because of the trial court and intermediate appellate court findings of uh, ineffective assistance on the issues of the cell phone records and the alibi witness. However, it's not a guarantee. And that may be something that they won't take a writ on it, but he will be able to pursue that in federal habeas corpus. And I have also seen on the Twitter and Facebook pages, I've seen Rabia Chaudhry talking about some big thing that they're keeping in their back pocket for a subsequent claim and right. uh, you know, I guess she doesn't know anything about post conviction uh criminal post conviction law, but you can't do that. When you find out about something you need to raise it generally within a year. Yeah, I would figure. And so but they're not disclosing what specifically uh the issue that they've quote discovered is. Um, but I would, sometimes it's a fine line making public statements like that, because if Uh you're called as a witness, the prosecution will have those public statements. Okay. And if you're under oath and they say, well, was this what you were talking about on this Facebook page on you know, two years ago, and if she's under oath, she'd have to say yes, (laughs) and that would, you know, basically say his statute had run on that claim. You can't, you can't hold on to something and then keep using a piecemeal to raise new claims. You have to raise all the claims at one time in a timely fashion. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. And um, so, and like I said, she's an attorney. Even if she doesn't practice criminal law, she can research the procedure and learn about the procedure and know that, you know, she's doing more harm than good. Right. That's kind of crazy. So, yeah. And uh, also on Hank Skinner, he's seeking twenty-five to thirty-five thousand dollars for all these expert witnesses that they've lined up to testify, even though the Court of Criminal Appeals has not granted him a new trial. <clears throat> so, um, as we saw with West Memphis Three and a couple of these other cases, sometimes. Claiming wrongful conviction can be quite a lucrative uh, means of generating revenue for yourself. Right. So, um, but that is, you know, those those are the those are the uh, the new developments. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and that's crazy that he wants 
that much money. Like we we've talked about that before. That's an exorbitant amount of money that he's most likely not going to get. Correct. Well, you know the thing that the thing that concerns me about that kind of thing is the Innocence Project has been involved in his case for several years now. The Innocence Project has multiple experts practically on retainer. The Innocence Project does its own fundraising. So I find it hard to understand why a an inmate who's being represented by the Innocence Project would need to solicit donation for expert witnesses to be retained by his counsel. I just, you know, my, my BS meter goes off. Right, right. Well, I guess let's go ahead <sighs> Get into Miss Riggs here. All right. Uh, So, yeah, we've got Christina Marie Riggs. Uh, She was born in Lawton, Oklahoma, and lived most of her life in Oklahoma City. Uh, The details of her early life are uncorroborated from the sources that I generally rely on. In a diary that she kept while in prison, she claimed to have lived with her mother and stepfather to have been abused, sexually abused by a stepbrother. And then uh, from the ages of 7 to 13, and then at 13 to have also had been sexually abused by a neighbor. Um, I don't unfortunately like i said the the resources that i tend to rely on don't mention any of that so that yeah, is rig self self-serving and uncorroborated uh statements regarding her early family life but then again let's be honest it seems like in not doubt or, you know, victim bashing or anything like they call it, but, you know, it seems like everybody that's in any sort of trouble, oh, I was molested. <clears throat> it does seem like the go one of the go-tos now. That tends to be, uh, that tends to be something that comes up. And, you know, now, like we've talked about it before, now I think that there are people, women and men, who are using allegations of sexual misconduct to uh, ruin people. And a lot of uh, entities and companies and media outlets are aiding and abetting them in that. You know, look at Les Moonves. He's outed, ousted from CBS based on claims of sexual misconduct or sexual harassment. Um, And while, you know, I no, I don't think that's okay, but I think that if that's what was going on, the woman should have come forward years ago. Frankly, if that was what was going on, 
my thing has always been I'm not going to let somebody make me feel less than. And if I don't want the attention, they're they're going to know very clearly that I do not want the attention and that if the attention continues, there will be consequences. And they will not right. be they will not be pleasant consequences. It, it it's going to get uncomfortable for you if you keep bothering me. It's one of those things we've seen, you know, quite quite often here recently where people are just that that seems like, you know, something that's exploded over the past number of years is, you know, sexual assault allegations. I mean and you know, obviously he was convicted, but look at somebody like Bill Cosby. You know, Bill Cosby was brought down by the same thing. <clears throat> Correct. Correct. In fact, most of the allegations against him couldn't even be brought in criminal court because the statutes had had it prescribed a long time before. Um, and so, like I said, I I know the I know that some women they want you know they don't want to lose the job, but what the women with Cosby, what did he do? He didn't do anything for them. Right. He had no sway over them. Okay, I thought the one And that's what I don't understand. I thought the one was And frankly obviously he had Well I wanna there are some actresses who came out and claimed, but the ones who went to trial weren't weren't actors. Or maybe were wannabe actors. But another one that struck me was several of the women, including uh, Crazy Janice Dickinson, he gave uh, them a pill and they took it. Right. I would be, you know, if he wants me to ingest a pill, he's going to have to hold me down and force it down my throat. And I'm going to fight tooth and nail. <clears throat> and when well, I'm see, done with him, he's not going to be thinking about sex. The craziest thing to me about that whole situation is I honestly thought that he was putting them in their drinks. I didn't know that he was just handing it to them. Yeah, he was supplying them with drugs. Well, I'll be. And they did. I mean, it was the 70s and 80s and early 90s. You know, that was the thing. So, um... But uh, anyway, that's, you know, that's, like I said, her her self-serving history. Um, at about 14 is when she began running wild, drinking, smoking cigarettes and, and marijuana. Uh, Christina also suffered with a weight problem. And she has said that she felt no boy would like her because of her weight. So she became sexually promiscuous in the hopes that that would get her a boyfriend. Um, this is another problem, and I was in that boat. That's why I got married at 23 to somebody that was not right for me for a variety of reasons. But I thought, oh, my God, I have to have a boyfriend. I have to be married. Otherwise, you know, my life is going to suck. And 
luckily, after my divorce, I got over that shit. Right. Um, I yeah, I haven't had a boyfriend since the 1990s. I haven't been on a date since the 1990s, and I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. You know, because I I learned to like myself, and I don't need a man or a woman to complete me. I'm I'm good on my own. Right. Um, so back to Christina, (laughs) Uh, you know, I guess this, 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 it makes me, I feel bad for her in a way because I know how she felt, Uh, but I wish that she could have met somebody that would have shaken her and said, look, you need to get over it because of course, the promiscuity led to at the age of 16, Riggs was pregnant. Uh, she gave birth to a baby boy in January of 1988, who she gave up for adoption. Uh-huh. And then she became a licensed practical nurse and worked part-time as a home care nurse and full-time at a Veterans Administration hospital. Now, licensed practical nurses... They take vitals, they, do, they can do wound care, they can do, uh, you know, baths, help assist patients eating or going to the bathroom. You know, they're not really medical-oriented. They have some training. You know, if a, if a patient is, has high blood pressure and suddenly can't find the words they know something's wrong and they know to report it higher up to a registered nurse or a doctor's nurse just in a hospital care setting but they're not really medical um, not a whole lot of medical functions right medical Uh, they do a lot I mean the licensed practical nurses and the certified practical nurses you know, they are the most hands-on in patient care. I'm not knocking the practical field at all. And I hope no one misconstrues that to be knocking. But, you know, there is, there's kind of a dividing line. I don't think they even administer shots in most situations or pills. Yeah. But um, so uh, another unsubstantiated claim is that Riggs has claimed that she was assigned to a triage area after the Murrah Federal Building was bombed in Oklahoma City in 1995. Huh. her trial counsel was never able to substantiate that or corroborate it. It's a claim that she has made, but one that, again, is not corroborated. She was claiming she had PTSD from uh-huh. the bombing and, and taking care of all the the wounded uh, 
and, and you know anybody that was in Oklahoma City in in downtown Oklahoma City on that day probably right. has PTSD. Oh, I'm sure. Whether you were in the building or near the building, or uh, you know, if you if you had to drive by the building in the days, weeks, months afterwards, you probably have PTSD. Um, so, uh, Christina, of course, as an adult, her, uh, success with, uh, dating and relationships had not improved. She dated several men, one of whom was a sailor named John Riggs. Uh, she dated a bar bouncer and then she started a relationship with an airman stationed at Tinker Air Force Base. In late October 1991, she learned that she was pregnant again. Mm-hmm. And when she told the airman about the baby, on the day before his discharge from the service, he uh, refused to accept the fact that the baby was his and moved back to Minnesota. Oh, damn. Um, not very chivalrous. No, that's kind of shitty. But, um, and uh, at that point, she ended up rekindling her relationship with John Riggs, who was home on leave. And apparently, John was willing to step up and raise Justin, who was born on June 7, 1992, as his own. Right. Um. Uh, the first child, of course, was you know a, a dramatic thing for Riggs, and she uh, went through all the normal, you know, highs and lows, uh, being very in love with her new son, but wondering if she was going to be a good enough mother. Right. Um, she and John actually married in July of 1993, when Riggs became pregnant. For a third time mm-hmm. uh, Unfortunately that baby She lost She had a miscarriage And lost that baby um, And then at some point She did begin seeing a doctor And was prescribed Prozac Right And you know Her family apparently There's a family history of Um Bipolar, depression, mental instability. She has uh, apparently a grandmother who was uh, committed a couple of times. She had a grandfather, a great-grandfather, who did succeed in committing suicide. A cousin who committed suicide. And then her own mother and another cousin and perhaps a sister who had all attempted suicide. But, you know, she did seek treatment and got treatment and was prescribed Prozac, so uh, she knew what to do. She knew how to get help. But, of course, as with uh, a lot of medications, when she felt better, she stopped taking it. Uh Uh-huh. Um, so 
the marriage to John Riggs apparently had become rocky, probably because of her emotional instability. Right. And then in 1994, Riggs became pregnant again with her fourth child, and in December, Shelby Alexis Riggs was born. Um, Justin was known as Bubby. That was the name his little sister gave him. And Shelby was called Sissy. Unfortunately, uh, as a lot of couples find out, having a baby does not uh, salvage a troubled relationship. And in 1995, uh, John and uh, Christina moved to Sherwood, which is where her mother was living. Right. and not long after that, uh, their marriage ended. Apparently, the kids had health problems. Shelby had ear infections. Justin had attention deficit disorder and hyperactivity, which made him more than a handful. Again, these are the kind of uncorroborated, self-serving statements from either Riggs or members of her family right. uh, who – probably in their desire to understand what happened are also trying to find reasons that what Christina did was not as bad as the prosecution portrayed it. Right. Um, So apparently um, after the divorce There was an it, uh, an incident between John Riggs and Justin, and again, it, it, this is coming from Riggs or her family. Um, one of the sources says that she moved back to Oklahoma City. However, with her mom being in Sherwood, I think it's more likely than not that John Riggs moved. And she ended up with custody of Justin and Shelby. Um, It's also interesting. I'm wondering whose name was on Justin's birth certificate. He did have the name Justin Thomas, but Thomas was her maiden name. So, um, and, and she was in a, and she, you know, the relationship with John Riggs, started early in the pregnancy was his name on the birth certificate. Uh, and we'll sure. get into that a little bit later. But um, again, it, her history, her depression did not get better. And being a single parent, um, it was difficult. And, you know, the impression that I got from everything I read I really, it seems like Riggs was one of those fragile people who 
just can't cope with even the smallest challenge. Right. But also I think a a kind of um I think she also kind of thrived on the drama. Mm-hmm. Because her life was practically a country song. You were lying about that. And um, so, of course, hospital work, uh, a lot of long hours, and she was working at the Arkansas Heart Hospital. She started off at Baptist and then went to the Arkansas Heart Hospital. She also worked for a temporary nursing agency. Uh She's complained over time that... The child care bills basically ate up her paycheck. Right. Yes. Um, which is possible. She also complained that she wasn't getting support from Justin and Shelby's fathers. However, again, that's an uncorroborated self-serving claim. Statement. Self-serving yeah. claim. Um, and, uh, that may have been just her way of trying to minimize some of the things that she did. She wrote bad checks and then she got caught. Um, her car registration and insurance expired, so she couldn't drive her car. And so, you know, that's. Toward that end of 1997, things have been mounting, and she decided she didn't want to. She didn't want to keep struggling, and so she right. was going to take her own life. And initially, that's fine. I I kind of wish she had said, "I don't want to keep struggling," and asked for help. She worked in the healthcare field. She could have gotten help. Uh, I, I think even in the in the mid to late nineties, especially hospitals where it's high stress environment on a daily basis, they were offering employee assistance programs where you okay, could talk to, to counselors. Let's be honest. Pardon? People who work in Yeah, I would think that she probably would have had pretty good health insurance at Arkansas Heart Health Hospital. Yeah, I mean, mean, hospital jobs even even if you're even if you're not in the medical aspect, even in the administrative aspects, you know, the health insurance is great. I worked a temporary job at the Med. And that was the that was the thing, you know. It's like the insurance was great, dental and vision, right. and you know everything. Um, so, you know, like I said, I I don't know that she could not have gotten help. And when it turns from suicide to taking your children's lives so that they won't have to live with their mother having committed suicide. That is when 
you really should be asking for help and not going through with a plan. Yeah, especially not when, uh, especially not when you know you are really having these thoughts like, "Hey, it's better my kids are dead than to be split up." Correct. That's insane. And you know, like I said, I I don't know I don't know whose name was on Justin's birth certificate, but she was in a relationship with John Riggs at the time Justin was born. Right. Justin didn't have his last name, but if if the airman's name wasn't on the birth certificate, he wouldn't have any. He would have to establish. And you know, honey. He has left and gone to Minnesota. Right, exactly. The day after he finds out you're pregnant. He ain't going to try and get the child. Yeah, no. I mean, you know, and, you know, it, 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 maybe it wouldn't have been bad for them to be split up if right. that was what it came to. You know, apparently Riggs, had an issue with Justin at one time, so Justin can't live with him, according to Christina Riggs. Um, so maybe if he did go to live with his natural father, his natural father's family, uh, and there was also her mother. Right. And if she did commit suicide, she could have done a will saying she wanted her mother to have you know guardianship over the kids. Hell, as bad as she was feeling... She could have set it up before she died. You know, and the thing is, part of me understands, yes, this is the act of a crazy woman, but part of me, she had the knowledge to be able to get the uh, drugs that she knew would kill the kids and so on and so forth. So part of me is like, she couldn't have been that damn crazy because she had obviously enough wherewithal to know what she needed. Well, I think that's, you know, that's another thing on a on another podcast and I I didn't read this in any of the articles that I that I found, but I heard this she claimed at one point that a guy that she dated not long before this happened, like in the summer of 1997, I believe it was, that he uh-huh. left her and took her credit card and maxed it out. And then she was responsible for the credit card bills. Uh-huh. And she wasn't making enough money and she was had all these bills and she couldn't pay her car registration, couldn't pay her car insurance, couldn't do this, couldn't do that. It's almost like she she was one of these people with a learned helplessness. Right. Well, and even if somebody told her, you know, I know I know you want to go out, but instead of going out to karaoke bars every night, just go on ladies' night when you drink for free and have your girls' night then. There you go. Ball you know, on a budget. He, he stole your credit card and charged it up. You call the credit card company. You give them his name and any information you have about him. You sign a fraud affidavit, 
1997, the most she would have been responsible for was $50. I was about to say, I don't know if they would, if they had those laws back then that you aren't responsible if somebody steals your shit, but... Yeah, I had a card at one point with like, I only had like a $250-$300 credit limit on it. My wallet disappeared. I don't know if I lost it or if it was taken or if I took it out and put it down and didn't pick it up. But I called the credit card company, and there had been a couple charges. And I only had to pay $50. Right. I signed the fraud affidavit. I lost the card on such such date. And, you know, that was it. I had to pay $50. Now, in 2012, I dropped my debit card in the parking lot at Office Depot. Someone Uh picked it up and went into Marshall's and charged, like, $150 $150 worth of junk. Damn. I realized I had lost the card. I went directly to Regions Bank. I went in. I met with the woman. I was crying. I was beside myself because my dad had died and we still didn't have the estate sorted out. And I literally had no money. Right. And I was just terrified that they were going to drain what little bit I had in that account. And then I was going to be up the creek. And the lady was like, oh, no, no, no problem. She pulls the account up. She sees the charges at Marshall's. She's like, well, you got here at, you know, you signed in at 1 o'clock. And this was at 1.15. So you didn't make those charges. She took them right off and refunded the money. Printed out a fraud affidavit, and she goes, our loss prevention will take it from here. Right. If we find the person, we find the person. If we don't, we don't. And so the whole $150 was refunded to my account. I mean, let's be honest. In the long scheme of things, yes, $150 probably ain't a big deal to a bank. But, you know, especially... Even in the fraud section, you know, I'm sure that's not a lot, but it's not about that. It's about the bank, you know, taking care of. Right. But, you know, like I said, and my dad had an issue. I think this was like in 2010 or 2011. Um, He went and looked at his American Express statement online because he was putting together a bill for one of the cases he was working on. And he had uh, charged a lunch or something that he was going to bill to the client. Right. And so, because the client, when we went to lunch, uh, didn't have his wallet or didn't have his card. (laughs) He left it on his desk when he left for the restaurant, so... He's like, no, 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 charge it and bill me. So my dad put it on his American Express, and he looks at the card, and somebody in Toronto, Canada, is going around to restaurants in Toronto and living high on the hog. 
Damn. I think it was I, I think it was around seven or eight hundred dollars hey. over several days. I think what happened was his American Express number got on the dark web. Right. And somebody got the number and made a new card or was calling in or, or money laundering. I don't know what it was. But whatever it was, he contacted American Express. They closed the account. They transferred the balance that was his. And he didn't have to pay anything on the fraudulent charges. Uh, and they FedExed him a new card the following day. Dang. That's, so, that's awesome. yeah, I mean, credit card companies are not... Now, you can't call a credit card company and say, yeah, I lost my card. Those charges aren't mine. Right. You've got to prove That it. won't get you anywhere. You have to follow yeah. through. You have to do... and. Like I said, I my Regents Bank, American Express, every company MasterCard is the the card that I had. They they are more than happy to help you. As long as you follow through. Right. You know, but you have to follow through. And I I I get the impression that that she was not a follow through type person yeah you know but and that may have been I've also known people like that that have problems with drugs and things like that so they they oh I lost my card that's why it's maxed out out. I didn't do it I lost it and somebody else did it when in reality Uh they maxed out the card right because they were going out drinking or buying things or, you know, whatever. So, um, and that may have been a factor with her her financial situation. It may have been that she was just living beyond her means. Mm-hmm. Because according to the prosecutor, she was making about 17000 a year at the heart hospital. Which, Which in 1997 is really not that bad. I think 94 to 97, 98, 99, I don't think I made more than 21,000 a year. Yeah. During those years. So 17, and that doesn't count the nursing agency. And also, according to the prosecutor, not corroborated by anything that I could find. She was getting child support for both Justin and Shelby. Apparently, the, oh, wow. the payments were being garnished. Oh, wow. So, again, that's uncorroborated. I, I don't have the court papers. Um, but, you know, her her situation was probably more likely of her own making. making. Well, Lisa, um, that's just before, the impression that I get. Before we get into the actual crime, do you want to go ahead and take our break here and then uh, and then uh, come back and start talking about the actual crime? 
Sure, we could do that. Um, I'm going to give you a warning, though. Um, uh, my phone has been on the charger, and it's at 44% right now. If uh-huh. you lose me, uh-huh. I will get it back on the charger and call you back. Okay. So just hold the fort if it happens. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be We'll be right back with more clear and convincing after this. AWO champion at D-Mike as they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available and this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. Like it's going to be fun. So, oh, yeah. Um, the bad thing is, and it, you know, if you want to play both commercials, I have no problem with that. Okay, definitely. definitely. So, 
yeah, when you have when you have a special commercial like that, you could still play you could still play uh sub ohm as well. Okay. I have no objection. Exactly. <laughs> that gives me more time to get back to my, my desk. Absolutely, and that that's something I am working on is getting more commercials made for you know not only this show to play on our other show uh, aftermath that airs every other Thursday, but also just other commercials in general. That way, you know, we don't have such quick breaks. Yeah. All right. So we're we're ready to talk about the crime. Yes, ma'am. And I mean, it's a doozy. I tell you what. I mean, yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. Um, all right. So on November fourth, about two weeks before this, toward middle of October, uh, Christina Riggs had decided to take her own life, but she also decided that she would take her children with her. Right. She then went about planning. Now, she was taking the antidepressant drug Elevil, uh-huh. which this is one of the aspects that is troubling to me. She was taking the antidepressant, so that means she was seeing probably a psychologist as well as a psychiatrist. Uh-huh. And this is where I don't understand why she did not talk about these suicidal feelings, issues, money issues, those things that the psychologist and the psychiatrist are trained to help her, not only to cope with them, but to also find solutions. Well, Lisa, I'm not going to try to get in the brain and tell you, you know, a crazy person, you know, I'm not, I can't think like that, obviously, but with that being said, one thing that instantly jumps off the mind is maybe she was worried that her kids would be taken from her if she told them, hey, I'm planning on killing myself and my kids. And then also, though, the thing that worries me is you said she was still on her antidepressant. Which makes me wonder, can she really claim that it was because she was depressed that she made these decisions? If she's on her antidepressant medicine and she's making this decision, she's making it with a clear mind, correct? There is a conundrum. Um, Because one of the things she mentions in her statement Things had just been so bad and her, her luck in relationships and money and all these things and she just she just couldn't take it anymore. She just wanted it to stop. But again, mm-hmm. if she's taking an antidepressant, she's seeing a psychologist and that psychologist is trained to help her to deal with these issues in a constructive right. way. She's also seeing a psychiatrist. Now, I would say if she loved her children as much as she claimed she loved them, if she's feeling that bad and wants to end her own life, 
and thinks that ending their lives is a rational decision, then maybe her children shouldn't have been with her. Oh, I agree. But what? And I'm so the fact that, that she would not talk right. about that, you know, and and that's another thing too that a lot of people, a, a lot of people have this misconception like doctors are all seeing and all knowing but if you're taking a drug any kind of drug whether it's a statin a migraine drug an antidepressant a cholesterol drug which is a statin but whatever um, a blood pressure drug if you're still having the same problems and symptoms that that drug was prescribed to you to alleviate when it's not working, you need to tell your doctor it's not working. Oh, absolutely. And Lisa, when I brought that up, what I meant is her whole issue with killing the kids to begin with was she didn't want them to be separated. So obviously she would probably think, hey, if, you know, those kids were taken by the state, then, you know, they'd be separated. So maybe, and once again, I'm not going to try to get in this Yeah, but they would be alive. That, I've never had children. Right. I wish I had, but I know it just wasn't in the cards for me. But, you know, I would think as a mother, you would want your children to be alive and healthy, not in the grave. I would agree. But obviously we're not thinking with a rational person here. And, you know, yeah, but I wonder, was the lack of rational thought was it really due to a mental disease or defect, or was it simply a personality disorder? True. That's a good point. You know, it's almost like Munchausen's by proxy. Maybe the problems with Justin and Shelby were not real, but they got her positive attention and sympathy. Mm-hmm. So on point. November 4th, uh, about 10 o'clock that night, she had gotten uh, Elevil prescription filled. She uh, gave a small amount, because Elevil also has a sedative effect. She put a small amount in water and made the children mm. drink it. When the children became drowsy, she had stolen morphine and potassium chloride from the hospital. And she only stole what she could put in her pocket without anybody knowing. Right. And didn't she... So that's another troubling troubling aspect to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but again, she didn't know how potassium chloride works. Right. And that's where I get confused. Was it that she gave them too much or was it that she gave them too little? She gave them, well, she only injected Justin with potassium chloride. She did not dilute it. See, and that's another thing that, that, that bothers me. And that's that kind of 
corroborates my statement that LPNs aren't really don't administer medication. Right. And don't start IVs. Although I'm sure there are a couple LPNs out there that could. Because she did not, in addition to taking the morphine and potassium chloride and syringes, she did not take IV bags Mm -hmm. to start a saline drip and then you inject the potassium chloride and I think there's a little catheter on the bag that you can inject the potassium chloride into the bag and then it's delivered through with the saline, basically. Now, to to be fair, and this is just an honest-to-goodness question, and maybe, you know, I need to have a nurse or something, you know, corroborate this, but does any nurse know the actual, you know, hey, you first inject the, uh, the saline, then you inject the potassium or the, you know. Well, no, no. What, what you have to do... What what you do, and, and even in, in executions, what they do, they put in an IV catheter, intravenous catheter. Right. And then they have a sterile solution, usually saline, sometimes D5W, Ringer's lactate. You know, there are different solutions that you use for different purposes. Um, and then you can either inject the medication, and it's delivered into the vein with the diluting agent. Mm-hmm. Or in some cases, because my mom's chemo, they injected it actually into the bag. Mm-hmm. There's like a catheter that goes into the IV bag, into the, the bag of saline, and that right. it gets diluted in that saline, she gave him full strength potassium chloride in the neck. Okay. And what potassium chloride, because it's salt, what it does is it burns a hole. And uh-huh. so instead of killing Justin as she wanted to do, he was in agony and he started writhing in pain and crying out. Right. Then she gave him an injection of morphine, but she gave him the morphine intramuscularly, and intramuscularly, it takes time to work. Right. Whereas intravenously, the effect is almost immediate. Uh-huh. So whether LPNs are trained to do these things and whether they routinely do them, she did not know what she was doing. I agree. And in the statement that she gave to police in the hospital, she claims that she rocked him and cried. Uh-huh. And then when his pain subsided, instead of calling 911 and saying, I'm I'm wanting to kill myself. I just tried to kill my son. I gave him potassium chloride. It made him it, it he was in pain. I gave him morphine. It took forever for the pain to stop. The pain seems to have stopped. I need help. 
come help me, come help my son. She doesn't do that. She picks up a pillow and she smothers him. Right. And then in her statement to police, she was really shaken. That was a really horrible experience for her. So she had to take some drinks and smoke a couple cigarettes and walk around and think about what she'd done. And then she went ahead and smothered Shelby. And Justin put up a horrible fight when she was smothering him, but Shelby just struggled a little. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure the drug had, uh, the drug she gave was the, uh, Elavil had, uh, taken more effect on her as well. Yeah, probably so, because she was probably smaller and, and, and younger. Um, and then yeah. after she killed Shelby, she moved the children to her bed, covered them with a blanket, and then wrote suicide notes to her estranged husband, John Riggs, her mother, and I believe a couple of other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the letter to John Riggs, she said, I hope one day you will forgive me for taking my life and the life of my children, but I can't live like this anymore. And I couldn't bear to leave my children behind to be a burden on you or to be separated and raised apart from their fathers and live knowing their mother killed herself. Right. She then swallowed 28 tablets of Elavil and injected herself with potassium chloride, which Uh undiluted simply burned a hole in her vein. And did not kill her. Which is kind the of crazy. following how day. Did the, how did the 28 pills Because it, her? well, the 28 pills, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't know that, I don't know that it's ever even corroborated. She did fill the prescription. She did only give the children a small amount. So the prescription mm-hmm. should have had 28 tablets I don't mm-hmm. know it just didn't okay. uh, you know the potassium chloride it burned a hole in her in her arm and her vein it never went it never got into her circulatory system okay so um, but uh, her mother found her the next morning she was semi-conscious and not responding she was taken to Baptist Medical Center Memorial Medical Center in North Little Rock for treatment. And when she was released the following day, she uh, was arrested by the Sherwood police. Yeah, sure. Um, And uh, so that was, that was her, her thing. Now, while she was in the hospital, um, her family apparently hired an attorney. Mm-hmm. The attorney contacted the Sherwood Police Department and said, right. I'm representing Christina Riggs. I want to be present if she's questioned. And that was it. 
Right, okay. It's not really clear on when exactly the call was made or who it was made to. Mm-hmm. Um, but at 9.20 on the morning of November 5th, uh, two detectives from Sherwood went to the ICU where Riggs was um, being treated, and they questioned her. And this was uh-huh. actually the morning of November 6th. So I think she was brought in late afternoon on the 5th. And this was the morning of the 6th. Um, She was Mirandized and the interview was recorded. Uh Uh, And there are some really kind of disturbing, kind of disturbing things. So, uh, and, and, you know, this whole thing about not wanting to leave the kids behind, not wanting them to be separated, not wanting them to be a burden, it's almost contrived to me. Absolutely. Kind of crazy to me. And, um, you know, again, she talks about uh, after she kills Justin, um, it was 20 minutes before she took her Elevil and tried to inject herself with potassium chloride. And she says, uh, that's because I drank and got up and smoked a cigarette and got back and sit for a minute. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it now. I can't turn back now because you've already killed Justin. And so I did it. Mm-hmm. Right. Which didn't help her case any. Because, I mean, let's no. that's pretty. If anything else, that's pretty bad. And um, so, you know, like I said, when it, when, when, when it went so horribly wrong with Justin, why didn't she call 911 to get help? You know, and if you're thinking of killing yourself and your kids, you know, I think asking for help and having the kids somewhere safe would be preferable. Right, absolutely. To, I, I would definitely you know, agree with that statement. You know, the thing is with that, though, we're, we're thinking like, you know, logical, right-minded people. Maybe, and, you know, I don't know. Maybe there was some way she justified it in her depressed state. I can't I mean, honestly, and we may never be able to understand that. Yeah, I, I, I know. I just, like I said, I sometimes I think it's it's all contrived to right. make her seem like she wasn't thinking clearly, and you know, she thought this was better than the alternative, but. Again, I just I just do not see it. Right. I mean, suicide is a selfish act because you're ending your own pain and starting a world of pain for 
everybody you leave behind. Right. I mean, and, you're and I know, I know it's that. difficult. I understand that, but it still is. You have to, you know, call it for what it is. Right. Um, I agree. And you know, to take the kids' lives is kind of crazy to me. But once again, like I said, you know, maybe, and like you said, maybe she has that multiple personality issue. I'm not sure, but there well, something. No, I'm not. No, she has a personality disorder, like borderline personality disorder. Not a multiple personality. I'm sorry, that is funny. You're fine. Um, I mean, honestly, I don't know the difference, but, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, it's just, we we may never be able to understand this, and we may be trying to, you know, make sense out of something that we just can't understand. Because, you know, I mean, why did a guy like, you know, uh, for example, Robin Williams, why did a guy who, you know, at the top of his life, you know, Decided to kill himself, you know, he was depressed. Minus the right. fact that he also had other things going on, you know, but, you know, it, it, it's just one of those things. Maybe we'll never understand it. Maybe it just is meant yeah. to make no sense. Yeah. I think the thing with Robin Williams, uh, you know, again, he was. He was in pain for a long time. And he had dulled the pain with substance abuse for many, many years. But he'd actually gotten his life back on track. Um, But I I think he had fallen off the wagon, so to speak. And so there was a little bit of, you know, briefly some period before. Uh, his suicide, and so he felt guilt over that, which can be very difficult. Well, well, and then he um, he well, got the Parkinson's. Yeah, yeah, he he was diagnosed with the on early stages of Parkinson's, and I think that was what he he just couldn't live with. Right. Um. So, but you know, he started. He st- ended his own pain, but he he started a world of pain for his children and his wife. Well, and absolutely, and that's the thing, you know. Sometimes it's just one of those things that you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and unfortunately, you know, people do stuff like that. But, uh, you know, that's what I'm saying, you know. Maybe it's just something that, you know, me and you – I don't know about you, but, you know, me and you may never contemplate suicide, but, you know, that may be just what it is, you know, when you're in that dark place. And, you know, I especially, I can kind of, I can see the suicide just because, like I said, you know, I've never been in that dark place, you know, that's, you know, what they want to do. You know, maybe they felt like there's no way out, but the kids is what, you know, really generally bothers me more than anything. Right. I I agree. So. 
We got um, But anyway, huh? I know. <laughs> Getting a little <laughs> deep there. So, but um, so anyway, she was questioned in the hospital, gave a statement, and then after she was released, she was arrested and held in the Pulaski County Jail. Uh, she was indicted for two counts of capital murder because her victims were under the age of six. Uh, that was the okay, basis so of the capital murder charge. Because they were so young? Correct. So I'm and I, I believe what... it may have also been multiple victims mm-hmm. and both under the age of six. Those are the aggravating factors that made it okay. a capital murder. Okay. I mean, at the end of the day, though, I have a feeling if it hadn't been capital murder, she probably would have asked anyway for it. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Well, she wouldn't have been able to, if they had, if they had elected under the circumstances to charge her with second-degree murder or even first-degree murder, she could not have asked for capital murder charge. Well, no, I'm talking about she probably would have asked for you know, the death penalty because from what I, I think in Arkansas, I think in Arkansas the only eligible death eligible charge is capital murder. Right. I believe so. If you're if you're wrong. convicted of first degree murder, that would be a premeditated murder without aggravating factors. And once again, you know, I believe in Arkansas it's one of actually the hardest states to get a death penalty because I believe, like, the jury has to be unanimous through, like, three or four phases and all of that good stuff. So, I mean, it's not easy no. to get a death penalty. No, it's, it's, only, it's only two phases, and they only have to be oh. unanimous on the sentence of death. They don't have to be unanimous on mitigating factors. Mm-hmm. Oh, and they have to be—they have to be unanimous on aggravating factor. Okay. So, like, Jesse Miss Kelly was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder for Chris and Steve, mm-hmm. and one count of first-degree murder for Michael. Okay. Because Chris and Steve, you know, died as a result of what was done. But Michael is the one that Miss Kelly said he chased down and brought back. Right, right. So that's why he was convicted of first degree. And that was life sentence plus 40 years. And it was life sentence and 20 years each on the two second degree murders. Okay. So, um... But, uh, you know, that's capital murder in, uh, it's Arizona that has three phases. Oh, okay. And that is they do the guilt innocence phase. Then they do the aggravator phase. And the jury has to be unanimous on the aggravators. And then they do the penalty phase. Uh Uh-huh. 
so um, that's I think that's what you're thinking of was it, and it 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 probably is a little bit harder in Arizona because that aggravate the aggravator phase can sometimes lead to uh, jurors unable to reach an you know, unanimous decision on the aggravators. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I just knew that at one point they have to be like unanimous. Yes, we want to put this person to death. Yeah. Oh yeah, they they have to be unanimous on on a death sentence. That is no 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 ifs ands or buts about that one. Okay. So um, and uh, interestingly, also on November tenth, nineteen ninety seven. Uh, members of Riggs' family filed involuntary commitment claims or commitment actions seeking to have her committed for mental health treatment. Involuntary committed. Okay. Uh this was these were filed by her attorney John Wesley Hall and her mother. Wait, one was filed by John Wesley Hall, uh, who was her who was appointed by the court to represent her. Then mm-hmm. another one was filed by um her I know her mother was also uh, her mother filed. Mm-hmm. And that was on the 10th of November, 1997. Uh, okay. They were also pretty pretty quickly dismissed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was kind of a, a cart after the horses had escaped. Right, right. Or closing the barn door after the horses had escaped. Yeah, I mean, are you going to be able to really take somebody out of jail and have them committed that's charged with, you know, capital murder? That makes no sense. Well, on the on the 10th of November, she may not have been indicted yet. Oh, okay. Okay, so they may have been trying to um, get ahead of it, prepare for the uh, mental disease or defect defense. Mm-hmm. And uh, pre-trial, the uh, John Wesley Hall, who was representing Riggs, uh, he filed numerous motions. Uh, from what I can discern from the docket pages, docket listings, he was trying to develop the mitigation case Uh to uh, assist her in um, in her defense. Uh, He was requesting medical records, mental health records, securing presence of witnesses, he filed a motion to suppress her statement. Um, 
There were motions for protective orders filed. Uh, There was a motion, apparently a psychological report had been filed in the clerk's office, and that was, uh, he filed a motion to have that taken out of the clerk's file. Um, There were several discovery motions. Uh, He had her evaluated by uh, court-appointed or or retained on behalf of plaintiffs. And the state of Arkansas was footing the bill for this. Right. Okay. So he he retained experts to evaluate her. Um, She was also evaluated by experts on behalf of the state because in in a criminal case, if you're going to allege a defense of mental disease or defect, the state has a right to have the defendant examined by their own expert and evaluated by their own their own expert. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing nefarious about that. It is simply, you know, trials are about equity. And it wouldn't be fair to give a defendant, even in a criminal case, with such high stakes, uh, their expert that says, yep, crazy as a shithouse rat. Didn't have right. intent. Doesn't know what he did. Didn't know what he did was wrong. Still thinks what he did was right. Uh, can't be, is not legally, criminally culpable. The, you, right. you know, you can't, that's not equitable. So the prosecutor has a right to have an expert come in. And I think that kind of, you know, I think in a way it kind of keeps both experts honest. Uh-huh. You know, so that the the plaintiff, the, the defendant's expert doesn't try and say, yep, crazy as a shithouse rat, doesn't know <laughs> You know what they did and, and what was wrong, and um, because they know there's going to be another expert that's going to challenge their opinion. Right. Um. So you know, I'll, like I said, I I think she got a a good defense, and basically, I think what Hall was going for was attempting to get a lesser. Included offense, right? Of second degree murder or manslaughter. Okay. And um, of course, in the trial, the prosecution had Riggs's statement to the police, which was not suppressed by the judge. Mm-hmm. Um. And we'll get into that a little bit more on direct appeal. Um, and okay. then he had the suicide letters. He had the drugs. Uh, he had Riggs as a mission to other people. For example, nurses in the hospital heard her say, I killed my babies. Um, right. So he had a lot of evidence. And I think he had some rebuttal of the claims of financial difficulty and... Uh, 
relationship problems and, and things of that nature. Um, oh. I don't know the extent of that because it didn't really become an issue in the direct appeal. Okay. Uh, but the prosecutor, the main prosecutor, uh, Mr. Jagley, has said several times in interviews that, you know, Christina Riggs was manipulative and that, you know, sh- the problems she had were no worse than the problems a lot of lower income, lower middle class Americans face every day. Right. You don't make enough money. Your bills are eating up most of your paycheck. You don't have a lot of disposable income. You know, a lot of Americans live exactly that way. Mm-hmm. Paycheck to paycheck. I and, you know, we we find a way. And like I said, uh, just some of the things I observed, um, you know, I think she was enjoying the attention it got from being sad and having all these problems to complain about, but she wasn't very proactive in trying to improve her situation. Right. You know, you're a licensed practical nurse, take some classes and become a certified practical nurse. Go back to school and become an RN. Those bitches make Boku money. The hospital would have paid for it. I mean, they make Boku money. And I think at the time, you're right. Heart Hospital probably would have paid for it because hospitals were desperate for nurses. Right. Because when I was... Back in the back in those days, I had several of the attorneys that I worked with say, "You need to go back to school and get your RN because that's where right. the money is." However, I'm not good at math. I'm not good at science, and I don't know that I could handle. Difficult people (laughs) (laughs) on a daily basis, (laughs) especially people and people who are in pain, uncomfortable, unhappy. You know, they have they have reason to be difficult, but when you're in pain, you can be difficult. I just don't know if I am the person. Because I want to be in an environment where if you yell at me, I'm going to yell right back at you. Right, right. And put you in your place. And I don't want to do that to someone who is sick and in pain. Right. So, um, but my my main problem is is the whole science and math. Mm -hmm. I'm just terrible at those. So, um, and then the defense, basically, they Hall's main argument was Riggs' mental 
disease or defect, her her crippling depression over so many mm-hmm. years, combined with the family history, she was not rational. She did not have intent, and therefore she was not guilty of capital murder. Okay. The jury, however, did not find that to be, no, the case. And they did find her guilty of two counts of capital murder. Uh And again, it was capital murder because the victims, there were multiple victims, and they were under the age of six, which which are each under Arkansas statutes aggravating factors, making the first-degree murder a capital murder, or right. each, you know, well, I, I think it was, there were multiple victims in the same crime, so that's capital uh-huh. murder, and then they were under six, so that's capital murder. Right. So, um, then the penalty phase uh, Riggs waived presentation of mitigation evidence. She did not want John Michael John Wesley Hall to call any witnesses to try to get a life sentence. She did not want to spend life in prison. She wanted a death sentence. And right. basically she testified to the jury. She did testify. And she said, I, I wanted to die seven months ago. That was the plan. So I want the death penalty. Right. And the jury – now, the jury in the sentencing phase could have considered all of the evidence put on during the course of the trial to prove the mental disease or defect. And they could have considered that as a mitigating factor uh-huh. to sentence her to life. So, um, and I, I believe they did find mitigating factors that she did not have a criminal record and um, that she did have uh, some emotional problems. Uh-huh. However, they did not find that the mitigating factors outweighed the uh, the aggravating factors in the death, and so right. they found uh, they they unanimously uh, sentenced her to death. Okay. Um. Yeah, they they unanimously found that she had no significant criminal activity. She had been arrested on the check charge, or at least one uh-huh. check charge, and that she uh, they found that she had abilities that would make her a productive member of society, even in prison. Right. And that the murders were committed while she was under extreme mental or emotional disturbance. Right. But they found that that evidence was insufficient. Uh, that particular mental disturbance was insufficient to prove mitigating circumstance. 
and they concluded that the aggravating circumstances outweighed the mitigating ones, and that justified a death sentence. So, um, that, and that's what a jury is supposed to do. They're supposed to weigh right. aggravating and mitigating, and mitigating circumstances, and then determine what penalty. Uh, and it's a case by case basis. It's not because she killed her kids; she deserves to die. Uh-huh. Or you know, because she didn't call for help, she deserves to die. Right. Initially, Riggs tried to waive any and all appeals. So the case went to the Arkansas State Supreme Court, which ordered that a Franz hearing be held. Mm-hmm. And right. the Franz hearing is basically to determine that the before dropping rights to appeal, the convicted death sentenced individual understands the what they're doing what they're doing understands the consequences and that they've made the choice knowingly and intelligently to waive any and all rights to appeal either the conviction or the sentence and mm-hmm. that came about in 1988 with Ronald Gene Simmons who murdered his family. He was another Arkansas murderer. And a Reverend Louis Franz petitioned to intervene as Simmons' next friend to get a stay of execution. And then the Arkansas Supreme Court found that, you know, Simmons had to have a judge determine whether he could waive his appeals. Um, Damien Eccles tried to waive his appeals and had a really? similar hearing. Yes. No, I did not know that. Back in 94, early 95. Um, well, now, he wanted to waive up. all appeals and just be executed. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, next time we talk about West Memphis 3, I'll, I'll fill you in on that one. Um, okay. Now, as you, as you may recall, in Arkansas, when you are convicted of capital murder and a jury sentences you to death, the court sets an execution date. Right. In Eccles' case, he was convicted on March... 16th or 17th, 1994. So an execution date of May 5th, 1994 was set. With Riggs, she was convicted and sentenced on June 30th, 1998. Her first execution date that was set was August 15th, 1998. Um, But you know, the case went to the Arkansas State Supreme Court. They found that there should be a France hearing and that um, the court would have to determine whether she was competent to waive her appeals. So they stayed the execution date 
to explore the issue of her competence. Apparently, after that happened, Riggs agreed to appeal her conviction, but did not want to appeal her sentence. Okay. So she went to women's death row, and that is in um, the McPherson unit in the Arkansas Department of Corrections. Right. Um, and that's not in Varner. I'm not sure where McPherson is. And there were only – it was a three-cell unit. Uh, the conditions for women were better than the ones for men. Uh and I don't think there were any other women on the, the death row at that time. Right. I don't know that there are any of, any women on Arkansas death row. No, I don't think there is. I can't think of one. Um, and so she did agree to appeal the, uh, the conviction. And so the uh, execution date was stayed. The direct appeal was filed, and the issues that she raised were that her statement to police was in the hospital, was involuntary, and her waiver of Miranda rights was also involuntary, unknowing, and unintelligently made due to her attempted suicide by drug overdose and overreaching police conduct. The Arkansas Supreme Court while it found that she was in custody and she was restrained, uh, she was read her Miranda rights. There was conflicting evidence on her mental state. Some nurses said she was oriented. Uh, Glasgow scale score was a 15. At 9 o'clock in the morning, 20 minutes, 20 minutes before the police interviewed her, um, other nurses talked about her being combative and confused the night before. Um, Wesley Hall apparently claimed she was hallucinating because a couple of statements toward the end of her statement that she makes are a little odd. But the judge had evaluated the the statement, not only the transcript, but the recording and found that she made a knowing, intelligent, voluntary waiver of her Miranda rights and the he did he did not order the statement suppressed. Um the court also went on to say that even if they excised the statement, there was plenty of evidence not stemming from the statement that the police already had before they interviewed her. Mm-hmm. They had the drugs. They knew they were from Arkansas Heart Hospital. They had the the, ba- the bodies of Justin and Shelby. They had her suicide letters. Um, they had statements in the emergency room. So, you know, it wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't a, a situation in which 
her statement in the hospital was all the evidence the prosecution had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that issue uh, did not have merit and was uh, dismissed. And like I said, they found the omission of the statement, even if it had been um, involuntary, was a harmless error because there was enough evidence to convict her without it. And then mm-hmm. the uh, Wesley Hall requested that the jury be instructed that at the time it considered criminal intent as an element of murder, that it also had to consider evidence of the mental disease or defect to determine whether Christina Riggs could have formed intent. This was basically a Hail Mary. Basically, they were saying, you know, when he wanted the jury to be told to, to... to decide whether Christina Riggs had intent, you have to consider her mental disease or defect. Mm-hmm. So that with the mental disease or defect, she could not have formed the intent to commit the crime. And without intent, there is no crime. Okay. And we see this a lot in... You know, when you see somebody who, say, is pulled over by police and they find drugs in the car, oh, those aren't mine. Right. I didn't, I didn't have those. Those aren't on me. That's, that is a, an attempt to uh, negate intent. Dahlia DiPolito. She was a battered woman. Her friend went to report domestic violence. She never intended for her husband to be killed. Or, you know, it was a, it was all a, a script for a reality show. Right. <clears throat> so um, that issue as well uh, did not have merit. Because basically the jury instruction that Wesley Hall wanted given was not a proper jury instruction. Because that's not how the jury is supposed to determine intent. And the jury instructions that were given were uh, constitutional and what is required under Arkansas law. Mm-hmm. And then um, the trial, the third issue was the trial court erred in overruling uh, Riggs' objection to a prejudicial remark made during the prosecutor's opening statement. You know, in the opening statement, the prosecutor basically was being a little theatrical and saying, you know, we're walking up to this house and we hear children laughing, but they're not in the living room. Where are they? And, uh-huh. of course, Briggs' attorneys objected to that. Uh, the judge overruled it. And uh, the, the Arkansas State Supreme Court found while 
it was theatrical. It did cross any lines. Uh, and it was within the bounds of argument. And, you know, defendants, defendants can, can do the same thing. You know, they can, they can be as theatrical as they want. Um, you know, go to YouTube, watch, uh, watch Brian Claypool's opening and closing arguments in Dahlia DiPolito. Drink mm-hmm. lots of coffee, though, because they're kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> but he gets, you know, he gets very, very animated in a couple of, uh, a couple of portions, uh, a couple parts of the close, especially the closing statements. And um, another thing, going back to the statement, uh, remember we talked about the family hiring an attorney and then the attorney contacting police and saying, um, uh, you know, don't talk to my client. I'm representing Christina Riggs. I want to be there whenever you question her. Don't talk to her if I'm not there. And it's it's very interesting. I think the issue was brought up in West Memphis Three as well. But uh-huh. the Arkansas State Supreme Court found that basically the hiring of the attorney on behalf of Riggs happened outside of her knowledge. And the Sherwood police were not required to inform her that an attorney had been hired on her behalf by her family. Damn. Um, Basically, what the Arkansas State Supreme Court has said in its decision, um, events occurring outside of the presence presence of the suspect and entirely unknown to him (laughs) surely can have no bearing on the capacity to comprehend and knowingly relinquish a constitutional right. No doubt the additional information would have been useful to respondent. Perhaps even it might have affected his decision to confess. But we have never read the Constitution to require that the police supply a suspect with a flow of information to help him calibrate his self-interest in deciding whether to speak or stand by his rights. And that is actually from the U.S. Supreme Court in uh, a case called Moran. Okay. Uh, and so the Arkansas Supreme Court went on to say in, in Riggs, hence under Moran, even if the Sherwood Police Department deliberately withheld information from Riggs regarding retention of attorney, that would not invalidate her waiver of her Fifth or Sixth Amendment rights. Those rights uh-huh. are personal to the accused, and she clearly waived them. This would have been an interesting topic to talk about with Commander Gernon last week. I have reached out to him and invited him on for two episodes. One on investigation because I feel like um, we could go more into in depth on some of the topics that we talked about toward the end of the show last week and then a second episode about the crime lab and the advances in policing. Mm. And um, 
So I'll I'll keep you posted on that. Okay. I'm waiting to hear back from him. But anyway, so yeah, if your family now one of the problems, one of the issues, apparently they wouldn't let Riggs family see her. And I don't know whether that was the hospital because of her medical condition or whether it was the police. Uh-huh. And based on the Arkansas State Supreme Court's phrasing of their opinion, it seems like the evidence that was presented by each side on the issue was kind of conflicting. Uh-huh. You know, the evidence of the attorney, and it, I don't believe from what I can from what I can infer, the attorney was not Hall. It was some other attorney. Um, but I will. I want to do an update show at some point later this year, maybe in the fall. And so I will do a little bit more research and see if I can identify who that attorney was. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, try to to see if I can find out any more information. It may be it may be a rabbit hole that I'll never get out of. But <laughs> I, will, I will try to find out who that was. Because there was a motion to suppress and the issue was, you know, raised in the motion to suppress. <laughs> So, right. uh, and then finally, the uh, Riggs argued that the court erred in admitting four photographs of uh, Justin and Shelby. Uh, basically, the argument advanced by Hall was she did not deny killing Justin and Shelby. Therefore, admitting any pictures was done to inflame the jury and prejudice them against her. Okay. And the Arkansas Supreme Court found that lack merit. Um, two of the photographs were of Justin Shelby in Riggs' bed, and that was basically showing the crime scene as it was found on the afternoon of November 5th. And then there was a picture of Justin with a a puncture mark in his neck that was used during the medical examiner's testimony, and I don't know what the what the uh, it was two autopsy pictures of the kid of Justin and Shelby. Again, those were used during the medical examiner's testimony. Uh-huh. So um, there was you know no, that there was a a legitimate purpose behind admission of those photographs and the court was not in error in admitting them. So that was that was the the thing. Um now interestingly enough later on um Amnesty International and the ACLU will raise those very issues as though they've never been decided before. in order to try and get public support for a campaign to uh, petition the governor of Arkansas to stop 
Christina Riggs execution. Right. Um, so then, because Riggs had agreed to a direct appeal, there hadn't been a France hearing. When she made the decision to waive her post-conviction appeals, they did hold the France hearing. Mm-hmm. And Riggs' waiver of her post-conviction uh, rights was found by the trial court to be knowing and voluntary and intelligently done. Uh, and then the Arkansas State Supreme Court affirmed the waiver and the trial court's findings as to the waiver. And so then the path was cleared. Mike Huckabee, I believe, was governor at the time. And this was was. in 2000. And he set uh, the execution date for May 2nd, 2000. Mm-hmm. On April 30th, Riggs was flown from McPherson to Cummins, where the death uh, death house, death chamber. chamber, execution chamber is located. Um, <clears throat> and she was uh, executed on. May 2nd, uh, they had a little bit of trouble finding a vein, but they were able to uh, put the needle in her wrist. So I think they set up two IVs so that if one fails, they can switch to the second one. And um, she, uh, the injection was administered at 918. And by nine twenty seven, nine twenty eight, she was declared dead. Okay. So, uh, Amnesty International on April fourteenth, two thousand, uh, sent out a press release, and you know basically cited the history of depression and the financial issues and. Uh, you know, basically said, don't let the state of Arkansas assist Christina Riggs in finally carrying out her suicide. That was basically the, you know, the stance. Um, And it's it's kind of interesting. I, I downloaded the press release. They wanted emails, faxes, express, and airmail letters sent to Governor Mike Huckabee uh, expressing concern about the execution, noting that the evidence that she was suffering from severe depression when she killed her two children and the history of mental illness in her family, stating that a prisoner giving up the appeal, their appeals does not absolve the state from its responsibility in this human rights violation urging Governor Huckabee to stop the execution. And then this one is funny, urging the governor to oppose a moratorium in Arizona. Not Arkansas, Arizona. 
What? Somebody didn't proofread. That makes no sense. And they also sent this to, uh, they also sought copies to be sent to diplomatic representatives of the United States in various foreign countries. Because, you know, they be international. <clears throat> and the ACLU also uh, sent out a letter uh, to Governor Huckabee that basically uh, cited the questioning when an attorney had been hired by the family and saying that she was hallucinating. I, I think that it appears from the letter that they probably took one of uh, Hall's briefs in the direct appeal and just copied what he said. Copied and pasted. His argument or statement of facts. Right. Um, because it's, you know, it's very dramatic. Um, Appellant was variously crying uncontrollably, talking fairly rationally, did not know where she was or what day it was, and was then delusional and hallucinating. Well, none of the testimony at trial, and, you know, this is an issue that was resolved at trial by the jury. Because even if the court Uh didn't suppress the statement, the jury could still be told, well, look at this. This is not, you know, this statement, she asked the detective about his mother taking an escalator or something odd like that. And frankly, being in a city where a a criminal defendant and a police officer's murder smuggled his own feces into the court and began consuming it in front of jurors, and uh-huh. to stop his capital murder trial, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Christina Riggs realized, I done said too much. I need to get myself out of this crack I put myself in. Right. So let me just start talking all crazy now. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, and then, you know, the ACLU it would be a, says it would be a terrible shame if the state of Arkansas executed a person with mental illness because, one, a statement was taken from her in a drug-induced hallucinatory state, two, the jury failed to judge her mental state properly, and three, she was too depressed or deluded to ask for help herself. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, she uh again she gave a couple of interviews from Death Row and, and she uh she had no you know, no issue um with her with her execution and actually her final words 
uh, before the execution began, she said, no words can express just how sorry I am for taking the lives of my babies. No way I can make up for or take away the pain I've caused everyone who knew and loved them. And then her last words were, I love you, my babies. Right. And that was Christina Marie Riggs. You know, and I have to admit, going into this, I had zero sympathy for her. Mm-hmm. Based on oh everything that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I do have a little bit because I think, like I said, she may have been one of those people. Her personality was just such that she thrived on the problems and she thrived on the attention they could get her. But she uh-huh. also did not know how to proactively make things better for herself. Right. And I also, I feel horrible that she felt a man with what she needed in her life. And that not having one was, you know, somehow a failure for her uh, because of her weight. And, you know, I, I, I do feel bad for her, and I feel bad that it got to the point that she took her young children's lives. I don't know that she was as manipulative as the prosecutor seems to believe she was. It's possible. Because I've known people like that. Right. You know, they and they you know, they use the oh woe is me to get themselves out of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. You know, screw up at work, cry and you know, my car got repossessed because I couldn't pay the car note. And then people feel bad and so they don't you know, the hammer doesn't come down on you. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, I just, like I said, I wish that she had, she was seeing a psychologist and a psychiatrist. I wish that she had talked about, been honest with them about what she was really feeling. I found several links to articles trying to link this to Elleville and that it's somehow uh-huh. the drug manufacturer's fault. But I think it comes down to she was not honest. She had no insight into her mental condition. And so no amount of treatment was going to alleviate her problems. For any medical condition to be successfully treated and if not cured, for the symptoms to be abated or lessened, you have to be brutally honest. And I went through that with my dad for two years because uh-huh. he would feel horrible all the time. But when we'd see the doctors, oh, yeah, everything's fine. And I'd be like, Dad, it's not fine. 
you fell and we had to call the fire department to help you stand up. That's not fine. And I think it's sad she didn't have anybody in her life who was an advocate for her. Who could see through the BS and know that something was going on. Uh-huh. You know, um, and who would speak up and say, no, you've got to do something. If you don't do it, I'm going to do it for you. True. So. Um, and, you know, I don't know that it obviously was what she wanted. She wasn't like Jody Arias saying, I prefer death, to try and kind of mind fuck the jury to give her a life sentence. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because, you know, saying you want death and then fighting tooth and nail, direct appeal, post-conviction, federal habeas, successive post-conviction, successive federal habeas. I mean, you know, web pages and all that. That's what Eccles did. Right. He tried to garner sympathy by saying, oh, I'm innocent, but just kill me now. And, you know, but he didn't, he, that's not what, you know, he wasn't going to do that. He was going to buy as much time as he could until Brent Davis and David Burnett were no longer on the bench and in the prosecutor's office, and then he was going to, you know, pull the wool over everybody's eyes. And he's probably pissed he had to wait 18 years to do it. Right. So, but that is that is Christina Riggs. Um, I will go through and find that address. When I'm not looking for it, it'll jump out at me. Of course. Yeah. And then I will also try at some point to find the name of the attorney that was hired by the family. I'm going to go through the. Go through the docket with the subpoenas around the time the motion to suppress was filed and try to identify the attorney. Right. So, um, but that is, uh, and we've got some, we've got some exciting shows coming up. Oh, absolutely. I can't wait. Like, I was just sitting here reading about what we're talking about next week. It looks like a good one. Yeah, and I have found two cases, and so we're going to have – we're going to feature some – I guess we'll call them mad doctors. And these are are medical professionals, doctors, who have committed serious felonies and ended up in the slammer. We're not going to do them, like, consecutively. We'll do one after Coleman, which is a case out of Texas. And then there's another one I just saw 
uh, from Texas on that new series, License to Kill, uh-huh. on ID. I oh, no, no, on Oxygen. Right. And um, then there's another one that I saw on another Oxygen Murder for Hire show. I like Murder for Hires. Right. Especially the Murder for Hires where nobody gets killed. Because you have a little bit more room for levity. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to feel yeah, guilty those are about always, it. those are always interesting. Especially I remember one, and I forget which one it was. This woman paid a cop to do it. Like the cop, they the, the guy somehow found out that she was trying this shit, and like he told the cops, and the cops set the shit up, and she paid the cops. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, fine. If you was that on the murder for hire show on Oxygen? I know it was murder for hire, but and it's been a while since I've seen it. But yeah, like she was trying to kill her husband. She was pissed off at her husband about something, but she was trying to kill her husband, and uh, he sat caught wind of it, told the cops, and the cops set her up, and okay. the detective, I guess, acted like a hitman. Okay, there there were two cases. There was one, a woman wanted to kill her ex-husband, but she actually was trying, she was a some kind of drug counselor, and she was trying to get uh-huh. a patient. To set it up, the patient went to the cops, and the cops set it up. Michael, that plot, paying the cop to do it, that's not really a a unique plot point because they all end up paying a cop to do it. Well, it's damn hilarious either way. <laughs> Dahlia DiPolito. She she oh, did yeah, give yeah. money to a confidential informant to give to the hitman. Yeah. She didn't actually pay the cop, but she promised to pay him. <laughs> and to kind of skip ahead a little bit, in a murder-for-hire scenario, anybody listening right now, if you meet the hitman and he's willing to bargain with you, uh, he's willing to, even though he told you to bring money and you didn't bring money, and he's willing to, you know, give you credit for the hit, he's probably a cop. Yeah, you probably. Because real hit, man, they don't operate like that. Like, I remember watching this, and they were like, yeah, as soon as y'all start talking money, that's when we're going to come and grab them. Like, like, come on, dude. (laughs) Okay. They don't hide I, I think I know that was um there were two cases there was one with the uh one with the counselor with the patient and then the patient mm-hmm. put her in touch with a quote hitman who was a cop and mm-hmm. I and then there was an, a second case where a woman actually tracked down her long lost sister Mm-hmm. She and her husband had been living apart for years. She wanted to kill him because he was getting ready to cut her off and divorce her. Right. And the sister went to police. Maybe that's what it was. Because that kind of sounds familiar. And um, and I think usually they don't arrest them right there when they're talking to the quote hitman. 
what they usually do is they put surveillance on them and then they arrest them later that night or on the way home. And there's another case out of Illinois that Kathleen Zellner has been involved in mm-hmm. uh, that I, I want to, I'm going to put on the schedule for some time. It's also okay. a murder for hire. Um, okay. Because that, like I said, that's a, that's a really interesting, but yeah, I'm going to have some crazy doctors. I've got a doctor from the murder for hire show too. Okay. Two doctors from okay. the murder for hire show. Oh, there's one, while we're talking about medical professionals, there's one uh, woman, uh, I think it was old school, it was deadly women, I know that for sure, but uh, she was a nurse, and she was killing folks. Yeah, uh, I I don't want to do angels of death, I don't want to do angels of death, I I just, I I, I can't, I can't do the angel, the, the nurse is like the woman in Oklahoma, there was another one in Texas. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Are I you talking can't do about, that. like, people that are wanting to die? Because these people didn't want to die. She just, like, would sneak into their room and no. kill them. No. I, no. I call them angels of death. And mm-hmm. it's not that the people want to die. It's not the patients want to die. It's that they decide the patients are in too much pain or too sick or not going to survive long or not going to have a good quality of life. And they uh-huh. end their lives claiming that they're doing it out of mercy. Okay. Those are the yeah, angels I don't, of death. I don't know that that's what this was. I believe, and I, I, I'm completely starting to draw a blank on what happened, but I believe it was something kind of like she freaking uh, – she freaking liked the attention or something whenever the freaking cops would come or some shit, and she was killing people. But I can't remember it, right. it right now. That's a like, that's a Munchausen's by proxy. That's like the yeah. mothers who make their kids sick. Yeah, and there then, was another you one know, they, that I saw that was like that that I was about to bring up. And but, uh, I, she had I, like three kids and ended up killing them all. I, I, don't, I don't know that I can emotionally do those either. Right. I'm just gonna be honest. I just, you know, I I would, I and I think for me it 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 makes me angry, and I would be saying the f word, and you know, <laughs> I would be wishing horrible horrible things to happen to the people, uh, to the perpetrators, and it just would not be a productive, right, uh, right. thing for me because. Those make me really angry, and I just can't, I can't cope. And, you know, it's almost like Manson getting into the victim count. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's bad enough this year that I'm doing Edward Edwards. <laughs> yeah, I kind of sent you down that rabbit hole, didn't I? Yes. And I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna turn out to be very interesting. But I hope the man does not listen. I hope he does not. I'm not even gonna say his name. Okay, yeah. because I don't want him to hear what I'm gonna be saying about him. Oh my goodness! I gotta send you, or you gotta go back in the uh, archives and listen to our episode. Because honestly, me and Brad I, were me and Brad were uh, 
were buying that hook, line, and sinker. Like, it sounded possible. And then it got to the I point did. where he was talking about, uh, I want to say it was uh, West Memphis 3. And he said that you yeah. know, Robin Hood hit like someplace in Chicago where he supposedly committed his first murder. And he said he was connecting them based on the names of places. And that's when me and Brad started uh-huh. kind of looking at like, hmm. I, you know, and that's, I think that's always been my problem mm-hmm. is that I will hear somebody like that. And I did it with, I did it with Paradise Lost. The first thing I did after I watched Paradise Lost was I went and found the direct appeal opinions in Miss Kelly and Eccles Baldwin right. and read those and knew right away that there was so much information that Paradise Lost did not include. And then I was on the discussion boards and I was sucked in and I spent 20-something years of my life and every now and then the motherfucker sucked me back in. Well, and then you mentioned you mentioned PL while we're talking about uh, while we're talking about Edward. I remember you told me that's not him. How do you honestly? And I'm not doubting you or anything, but how do you know that's not him? Did you see something refuting it, or because I wouldn't mind looking that up? Because I always thought that was just fascinating as it was him that he managed to con it okay. right that shit. The reason I I don't say 100% I know for a fact that's not him. I am saying that the basis of his claim that it is him is so totally flawed that it can't be him. He says on his webpage, go to his webpage, he has Mm -hmm. Gitchell's notes from an interview with Doug Cooper mm-hmm. linked on his page. He says Edwards ingratiated himself with Doug Cooper and was filmed at the cemetery and he did all these things. He had a dollar bill. Did you see a dollar yeah. bill? Could you see a uh, dollar he bill? Something out and put it in his wallet. I do he pulled that, something but... out but he could have been pulling out anything. He could have been pulling out a prayer card from the funeral of the person he was at the cemetery to visit. The cemetery's well, not in West Memphis. It's in Memphis. He well, is supposed to be a police detective. He did not even get basic, simple, basic facts correct. Well, and there are some things that I do believe, like, uh, you know, that he was talking about because he said that, you know, Edward's book talks about it, which I wish I could have read Edward's book, but uh, he said, you know, he would go around and freaking talk to people, uh, talk to people and, you know, talk to cops and talk to people, and he'd just hand them the book and stuff. And also That the, doesn't, uh, but, that was but cool. Michael, that's the thing. He has confirmation bias I mean he's got like confirmation bias to the hundredth degree 
because even in the absence of any documented any documentary evidence, mm-hmm. he states things as fact that are his speculation. Well, and I mean, like me and Brad have talked many a time since then, this guy committed every major murder since, you know, the 30s. We were laughing about it one day. He was the Zodiac Killer. He was Black Dahlia. He was uh, West Memphis Right. Day. He was John Hay. He was, I believe, the Atlanta child murderer. He was, He killed John Scott Walsh. Peterson. Yeah, he mm-hmm. killed Lacey. Uh, he killed the yeah. one in Washington. Uh, who was the one in Washington, D.C.? Um Shriver? No. What was her name? The one that was killed. Chandra Levy. Chandra Levy. He killed Levy. Uh, I mean, he he literally committed every major murder in the past 70 years. Yeah, exactly. We'll get in that because we're going to do two decades at a time. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get into that. But no, it's, well, it's, I mean, that's the thing. For me to he, say that Edward- he says, I mean, I, I think we talked about this before. There's one chapter in the book, and he claims that the woman he, that Edwards is talking about in the book was Marilyn Shepard, Sam Shepard's wife. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the book, the woman has a daughter. In life, Marilyn Shepard had a son, Hmm. and Marilyn Shepard was pregnant with her second child. Right, right. At the time of her murder. Oh wait, the, the book, the woman in the book, it's in, it's in Dallas, Fort Worth, or Buffalo, or somewhere like that. Marilyn Shepard was in Ohio. Right. Well, and then yeah. like, and he says he says things are the same. But Michael, just reading just the West Memphis Three, just this section on the West Memphis Three, he doesn't have a single fact correct. Not one single fact about the murders is correct. Unless I'm mistaken, and once again, don't get us wrong, obviously Ed Edwards was a convicted killer, and I believe he killed multiple people, but I mean, come on now, this is, his stuff gets a little far-fetched, I believe I even left out, I think he was, he killed the Manson, uh, the, uh, why am I drawing a blank, who is the movie star that Manson No, he, no, killed? no, 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 he didn't give Edwards credit, credit for Manson. Okay, I he thought didn't he give Edwards credit. credit. No. No. I just He claims Edwards and Manson were in prison together, but he doesn't he doesn't give him credit for Manson. Well, and I mean I'm sitting here thinking about this, like this dude is not only, you know, the best criminal mastermind to be able to, you know, plant all this evidence and I'm surprised he stopped short of saying OJ. Honestly. Yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll get into that. It's crazy. And anybody that hasn't heard of this book, uh, there's a TV series. I haven't got to watch it yet. I know it uh, aired on Spike TV. I haven't found a place to rewatch it yet, which I think it's now the Paramount Network. But there was actually a TV series that they did, too, uh, with Cameron and Edward's grandson, I want to say. 
And there's a point where I remember reading that Edward's grandson was like, what the hell are you even connecting this for? There's no evidence. Yeah, I watched, I listened to it at work. I didn't, I couldn't watch it, but I, it was on Amazon. And I bought okay. the episode, so I may go back and rewatch it at some point. Um, but, uh, all right, well, we have gone down another rabbit hole, Michael. Yes, we have. <laughs> I'm surprised Log Dog hadn't cut us off. Right. We All right, well, let's, let's put a bow on this one. There we go. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us on Tuesday, July 2nd, 2019, beginning at 8 p.m. Central for Episode 17, State of Virginia versus Roger Keith Coleman. Coleman was executed on May 20th, 1992 for the rape and murder of his sister-in-law, Wanda McCoy. From the time of his arrest, Coleman claimed he was innocent. Prior to his execution, he gained support from various advocates and was featured on the cover of Time magazine. We'll talk about the facts of the case, Coleman's trial and direct appeal, post-conviction DNA testing, and the post-execution testing that subsequently proved Coleman's guilt in 2006. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.